You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. again, Redemption. Good morning. Uh, a couple of updates on our masks. So as it looks like many of you got the memo, uh, we are now making masks optional when you're seated in your pods. We're going to continue to ask you to wear them um, when you get up and travel anywhere else in the building, um, just because we don't know other people's statuses at this point, their comfort levels, their um, immune systems, etc. So thank you for doing that. We appreciate that. Um, hopefully we are moving forward in all of this and heading towards some, I don't know, something that looks like what it used to look like, I guess. Um, keep, uh, we'll keep you posted as that continues to change. We're going to keep an eye on things and we will adjust as needed, okay? So this is certainly not a, a one and done decision. Also, if you did not get the update about the mask, make sure you're following us on social media. I hear the person who does most of our social media stuff is a fantastic guy, uh, and you'd really want to hang out with them and get to know him. So follow us. It's, it's me. Um, follow us if you aren't, and you can subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, we use that to shoot out like information about, hey, we're changing our mask procedures, and we also have a weekly reflection for you um, that we send out every Friday. Okay, some more fun stuff here. We have a wine and theology night with Pillar Seminary coming up. We're really excited about this. It's March 25th. Keyword being uh, wine and theology. You have to like either one of those things if you don't like both of them. Um, it'll be a fun night. It'll be a great workshop where we'll be exploring the concept of I pledge allegiance uh, with the one of Pillar, uh, sorry, with Pillar's president, Dan Lowry, fantastic guy, uh, was a pastor, has a PhD, um, and is also a professor. So you won't, won't want to miss that. You can find all of this at the Today page. So go to redemptionhou.com forward slash today. And if you're new, if you scroll down just a touch, you'll see a connect with us button. Click that. Let us know that you were here. We'd love to reach out, say hello, get to know you, extend an invitation to grab some coffee or something like that sometime, give you some space to ask questions and give us a chance to, to actually get to know um, our people. So, okay. So with that, back in Mark, we've been in Mark for, uh, I don't even know the count, Zach probably has like the day number in his head. He could probably do that math. I don't know. It's been, a, it's been a long time. We're nearing the end of Mark here. And we are, as we appropriately are in the season of Lent and heading towards Easter, we are in the final days of Jesus's life. Last week, I challenged us with the question of, can we trust Jesus? And I want to actually return to that question again this week. Can we trust Jesus and the reason why is, is I think um, we can wrestle with this question in lots of ways, 
But I think for the most part, it, it stays theoretical, right? We could sit back and write papers on why we can trust Jesus. But, but in reality, this is the question that we wrestle with as we live lives of faith. Every single moment of every single day, it's not a general, can I trust Jesus? It's can I trust Jesus right now in this moment, in my situation? Can I trust Jesus? This is the question of a life of faith. Can I trust him when I'm being laid off? Can I trust Jesus in the midst of a messy divorce? Can I trust Jesus when those around me that I've trusted have let me down and hurt me? Can I trust Jesus with my temper? Can I trust Jesus with my insecurity? Can I trust Jesus with the fact that I feel like I don't have enough money? When and where are you, Jesus? Can I trust you right now? This is the question And the answer to this question, why can I trust Jesus, is the answer. That if if we get this part of what Mark is telling us, so much of the rest falls in place, and if we miss it, so much of the rest doesn't matter. Who Jesus is and why we're able to trust him is the foundation on which we ought to be building our lives and our faith. And our question of faith is really a question of authority, which is really just a question of power. Can I trust Jesus? Are you strong enough? Do you have enough sway? Do you have enough pull? Can you really do this? Yeah, like I know that Jesus loves me, but it doesn't matter if Jesus loves me if he can't or won't do anything about my situation. It's a question of authority. Where can I turn for help? Where can I turn for power? Who or what can get me out of my mess? And if I'm being really honest with you, it's a question that I wrestle with regularly, but especially this week. We'll get back to that in a second. I wanna look at Mark's profound answer to yes, of course you can trust Jesus. And I wanna tease out some of this just a little bit and then we'll come back to wait, so what does that mean? What does it look like for us to trust Jesus? So we're in this final section of Mark, and since Jesus arrived in Jerusalem back in chapter 11, he's been in this contest with the religious leaders. There's been this question of authority. Who has the say here? Who has God's ordained authority? Jesus walks in, he curses the temple, he flips over the tables, and the religious leader going, whoa, 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 who do you think you are? What are you doing? What gives you the right to do this in God's place? And this conflict has been building and building and building, and everybody wants to know who has the power? Who's in charge? Is it the religious leaders or is it Jesus? And as we read Mark, this tension is meant to be building in us as the reader. And so we pick it up in verse 53 of chapter Mark, sorry, Mark chapter 14, and it's time to find out who's really in charge. Verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. 
right? So in this moment, Jesus, no longer surrounded by all of his followers, no, no longer surrounded by fanboys, no longer surrounded by people who know him and love him and trust him, he's now surrounded by enemies. He's surrounded by at least skeptical people who have some really serious questions, the implication of which is precarious for him. There's no crowds to win over. He's just surrounded by the religious elite. And they want to know, who exactly are you, Jesus? Verse 54. Now Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. Right, so this gathering of this, these religious people, this would have happened in the very, very wee hours of the morning or very, very late at night uh, before the sun has come up. And what they're doing is it is this impromptu, it's not really an actual trial. It's not a formal trial. It's a, hey, look, we got to get rid of this guy. He's a threat. Can we find a good reason enough to get this taken care of before Passover? Because once the festival hits, our hands are tied and we can't do anything for a little while and we're afraid of the, the trouble that this guy's gonna stir up over the next couple of days. So we gotta take care of this now. So they meet in this impromptu gathering and they decide ahead of time. All right, we know we're gonna kill him, right? Now let's figure out why. Right, we know he's guilty. Let's figure out what he's guilty of. And in this moment, the religious powers resort to injustice. They've made up their mind on what they want to do and now they just are looking for their excuse to do it because they want to keep and maintain their power and all the affluence that comes with that power. And lest we be too harsh on these religious elite, I find myself over and over and over again confronted with the same question. Am I willing to give up some of my authority, some of my power, some of my affluence in order to follow Jesus and believe who he actually says that he is? Verse 56. Many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. So Deuteronomy talks about, hey, look, if, if you want to convict someone, you have to have a, at least two witnesses that agree. Right, so one person could just say, ah, I saw him do this, and that's gonna cause problems. But if two people can get up and say, hey, look, no, we both saw him do this or say this or whatever, now you can um, give a, a, a guilty verdict. But their testimony was inconsistent. That's a problem. Verse 57, so some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, well, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days, I'll build another made without hands. But not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Right, and so they're saying, hey, this is a false testimony because Jesus said something like this, but it's not exactly what Jesus said. Jesus never said, I'm gonna go destroy the temple. Jesus said, the temple will be destroyed and I will rebuild it in three days. Right, we learned this uh, second part from John, not from Mark. And so there's some twisting of the truth here, maybe in their own heads, this is what they heard Jesus saying, but this is not an accurate representation of what Jesus actually said. You can see them grasping. They don't have an actual reason to convict and kill Jesus, so they're, they're trying to conjure one up. Why? 
because Jesus is threatening their whole order. He's threatening to reorder and tear down the entire system they've built their lives on. That all their money and their wealth and their power and their prestige and their voice and all of that comes from this temple complex and everything that it represents. And Jesus is coming in saying, no, 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 this, this isn't real power. This isn't really worth what you think it's worth. In fact, I'll prove it to you. In a little while, it's all gonna come crumbling down. And they're outraged. He's a threat and he's gotta be squashed. And so verse 60, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, why won't you answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and he did not answer. So this is to fulfill what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. And as Mark continues, the, uh, the voice of Jesus gets smaller and smaller and smaller. He says less and less and less. If you've got a Bible in front of you that has red letters, if you flip back a couple of chapters, it goes from being mostly red to a little bit of red to almost no red at all. Like the, the religious system is trying to steal his voice, but at the same time, I love this picture. Compare their shouting and their clamoring and their lying and their scheming to Jesus' quiet, still, stoic confidence. Not in himself, but in the Father. See, see, they're coming from a place of real insecurity in their position. They're scrambling to maintain what God himself has supposedly established and promised to maintain for them. And in contrast, Jesus silently trusts the Father. He's already given himself over in the garden. He's already entrusted himself to the will of God. He knows what's coming. He knows it's gonna be painful and brutal and violent and not good but he trusts the Father. He trusts him. He doesn't need to scrape and claw and fight in order to save himself. He trusts that the deliverer will deliver him. He trusts that the God of life will sustain his life. He trusts that if he does go down to Sheol, that God will bring him right back up. Verse 61. And again, the high priest was questioning him and saying, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And it's in this verse 62, this is the heart and soul of Mark's gospel. This is what uh, theologians are gonna call the, the Christological climax. Everything in Mark has been building up to this statement in verse 62. Who are you, Jesus? Where's your authority from, Jesus? Why do you think you can do this, Jesus? Why should we trust you, Jesus? Verse 62, I am exactly who you say I am. I am the Messiah. I am the son of the blessed one. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I am. I am, right, the, the name of God uttered to Moses in Exodus, 
I am who I am, the eternal one, the one who was not made but makes everything else, the source of all love and life and beauty and goodness, I am. The son of the blessed one. The blessed one is a euphemism that they would have used in place of the name of God. To use the name of God would have been blasphemous. And so they substituted it all the time with several different phrases. One of those phrases was the blessed one. The one from whom all blessings flow. The giver of gifts. The gracious one. God. Are you saying that you're the son of God? the exact image of him, that you look like him, that you act like him, that when people look in your face, they see the face of God. Is that what you're saying, Jesus? I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Right, so uh, I think when we read this, we hear Jesus saying, I'm gonna be sitting at the right hand of some sort of like position, some sort of like, I don't know, like the president has a position and I'm the right hand person to the president of, of that office. But notice in the NASB here, it's, it's capitalized, rightly so, because again, this is another euphemism that Jesus is now using for the name of God. Instead of uttering the name of God, hey, I will be sitting at the right hand of Yahweh, he uses a euphemism that everyone would have understand implies, oh, we're talking about Yahweh. I will be sitting at the right hand of power. His name is power, and I am at his right hand. And you're trying to judge me. Jesus' confidence in the Lord is staggering in this moment. He was sitting at the right hand of power and he will be coming with the clouds of heaven. And in this, these two passages that are enthronement oracles from the Old Testament, Jesus combines them together to form this picture of his identity. The first uh, comes from Psalm 110, verses 1. I'm gonna read verse two so you can get the the gist. And the second comes from Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. So the first, Psalm 110 verse one, I'm the one who's seated at the right hand of power. Here's what Psalm 110 says. The Lord, Yahweh, right, the proper name of God, the Lord says to my Lord, come sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus utters this in the face of his accusers, of those trying to judge and condemn and snuff him out. He says, don't you know I'm the one who will sit at the the right hand of my father until all of my enemies are put under my feet? But it goes on, verse two, then the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule among all of your enemies. This is a statement of authority. Who are you, Jesus? Who are you, Jesus? I'm the one who rules over you. I'm the one who stands in judgment of my judgers. And then Daniel 7, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days. Ancient of days is again a euphemism for Yahweh. And he came up to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and all the nations and all, the, all of humanity from every language might worship him. 
And to this one, his dominion was an everlasting dominion and it will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And in the face of his accusers, Jesus looks them in the eyes and says, I am the son of man, the one seated at the right hand of power who you will see coming on the clouds of heaven. Do your worst. You got nothing on me. You can't do nothing to me. Like You don't actually have any real authority over me. Don't you understand who I am? Jesus is the one who has universal and unending dominion over all things, and even his accusers will see it in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. The Messiah that they thought they were destroying, they would see vindicated and exalted to the right hand of the God they claimed to worship. And it's in this special relationship to God uh, that the charge of blasphemy comes, right? So a little aside here. So a lot of times people ask, hey, where does Jesus say that he's God? And, and we could go to a couple different places that say that pretty clearly, but really it's the wrong question, right? It's an okay question to ask, and I understand why we ask it. But it's, it's, not, a, uh, it's not a first century question. Their question isn't, hey, uh, are you God or not? Right? They live in a polytheistic world where there were lots of lowercase g gods. So the question becomes, who is the God of the gods? Whose God is most powerful? Which God has the authority over all the other gods? And so Jesus' claim here is one of immense and supreme authority above all things. It's a stronger claim than simply, I am God. He points to the divine authority that equates to God's authority and speaks of possessing a glory and a power that only God possesses. And so Jesus says, hey, I have supreme authority and power over all things, past, present, and future. And we know that this is clearly understood by them because the very next verse, verse 63, tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of a witness? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you, right? What are we gonna do? Look, you, you've heard it yourself. We don't need a trial. He's done it in front of us all. And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fist and to say to him, prophesy, right, mocking him. Who hit you? You're blindfolded. You can't see. Who hit you? Who hit you? And the irony is, as he had prophesied just before this, they're going to beat me and they're going to spit on me and they're going to reject me and they're going to crucify me. And in their mocking of him being a prophet, they're fulfilling the very prophecy that they're mocking. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. And so we pause here in this beginning of the violence done to Jesus and we ask again, can we trust Jesus? 
Right? Last week, I made the claim, hey, we can trust Jesus even when it seems like God has been conquered because God has entered into the darkness alongside of us in order to overcome the darkness. He, he does this out of a, of a profound love for us. But at the end of the day, right, Jesus loves us, uh, that's great, but like, uh, we need more than that. There, there's something that if, if Jesus loves us but can't do anything about anything, then Jesus' love is, is nice, but we're missing something. And so this is the question that you and I live every single day. It's one that I continue to wrestle with, and I, I wanna spend uh, a minute kind of fleshing this out for you. So as, um, as a young person, younger person, not now, I'm talking about the past, um, I, I remember making a conscious decision, hey, I, I wanna go into, at the time, right, this is my thinking at the time, I wanna go into full-time ministry. I wanna spend my life serving Jesus. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong. You can, you can and should be spending your life serving Jesus regardless of whether you go into full-time ministry or not, right? So there was a little bit of wrong thinking there, but I, I want you to hear um, where I'm going with this. At that moment, there was, a, there was a bit of a crux in my life. I realized that there was a fork in the road and that if I went down this road, I'm gonna go to Moody Bible Institute. I'm gonna get a degree in Bible and I'm gonna go get a job that has to do with teaching the Bible, which in, in most circles is not, I talked about this last week, it's not a prestigious and lucrative thing, right? Um, I would have, as a, I used to teach high schoolers Bible, <laughs> and I would have students that come to me and say, hey, I told my, uh, my mom and dad I'm gonna be a missionary, and they're, they're, they were like having an intervention because they said, no, 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 you're going to law school, <laughs> right? Like this is not what most people want for their children. It's not what most people look at and be like, man, that's really a prestigious thing. You're a Bible teacher or you're a pastor or you're a, right, whatever. But with that comes a profound sense of um, like insecurity on my part. Right at the time, it was, a, it was a decision I was very secure in making, but I don't know, 15, 20 years into it, like I look at my checking account and I wonder, what could this be if I had made a different decision? Like what, what might this look like if I were to sell out, in my words, sell out and, and not live into the calling that I feel like God has called me to? How much am I leaving on the table financially by choosing to be a pastor, an associate pastor at that? I'm not even the main one, right? right? And, and don't hear me, that's not a knock against the church. These are very real insecurities that I struggle with. What could have been different if you had just chased after the money that seems like it would actually really fix all your problems instead of trying to follow this Jesus who actually really doesn't seem to have fixed all your problems? And like this actually came to a head for me this week because I'm trying to get our daughter into uh, day school, which if you've got kids and you understand the world of day schools, it is a, it's a hot mess. Might as well be like Ivy League. Like there's a three-year waiting list. My kid will be in school school by then. Like what's the point of the waiting list if, and I'm finding out like parents have like applied to these schools before their kid, before they were even pregnant. I'm just like, I don't even understand how any of this works. I'm so confused. And I thought we had a sure thing for our daughter uh, and we had a backup school, right? You'll, anyways, none of that worked out. 
And on Friday, um, I just had a deep pit in my chest that said, you've let your daughter down. That if you were a doctor, you wouldn't have this problem. Um, Not that I could be a doctor, but I'm just saying, right? If you had more money in the bank, I bet you could find a school. So many of your problems would go away if you just had a little bit more money. And in that moment, I realized, like, oh, like I, like, okay, on paper, I know all the right answers, but in this moment, I think that money has more power than Jesus does. In this moment, I, I think I need money more than I actually need Jesus. In this moment, I, I, I want to live and worship money and not actually live and worship Jesus because I think money will be better for my soul than Jesus. Right? And, and it's like, I know the right answers in my head, of course, but it didn't change the deep pit in my stomach and it didn't change the feelings of insecurity in that moment of like, crap, this is our life. I'm almost 40 years old. Like, we're gonna have to pay for college at some point. Like, this is, and I turned to my wife and I said, I feel like I've just let y'all down. Like, all the pressure's on you to have to go and be the breadwinner, which is, which is fine, I'm okay with. I don't want her to have to live under that pressure and she very much does have to live under that pressure and I feel powerless and helpless and stuck and God, where are you? And it struck me, Jesus doesn't promise us that we'll be wealthy or prestigious or that my daughter will get into this or that school. He promises us so much more, so much better, so much more life-giving things than that. And at the end of the day, regardless of what our circumstances look like, regardless of what my bank account looks like and what I think my life would or would not look like, if it were different, Jesus still has supreme power and authority over all things. Past, present, and future. And the good news is, is even in your doubt and even in your skepticism and even this moment of distress, Brandon, he deeply loves you and he'll carry you through even this. And so right now, in this moment, whatever situation you find yourself in, you can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus uh, when you've lost your job. You can trust Jesus as you are going through the wreckage of a divorce. You can trust Jesus in all of your insecurities. You can trust Jesus in your sickness. You can trust Jesus in your poverty. You can trust Jesus even in your oppression. You can trust Jesus because he loves you and the love of Jesus is the love of the creator. It's the love of the sustainer of all good things. It's the love of the source of all goodness and beauty and delight. It is the love of our liberator, the love of the judge and vanquisher of injustice. It's the love of the ruler of the cosmos. The love of Jesus is the love of the one who was dead but was brought back to life by the Father, the resurrected one, the glory 
victorious one, seated at the right hand of power, who will come back riding on the clouds of heaven. You can trust Jesus because the love of Jesus is the glorious love of God. Will you trust him with me today when it seems like all hell is breaking loose in your life and he's nowhere to be found? Will you trust that he loves you and that he can and actually will do something for you? Let's pray. Jesus, I confess I more than anyone need to hear this today. That I need to be reminded that you love me, yes, absolutely, but I also need to be reminded that you haven't lost control, that you do have power, that there is really healing in your wings and that you care about me. Will you remind us of this this week? Will you carry us this week? Will you help us to throw ourselves on you and entrust you this week with the darkest and biggest circumstances that we face? Jesus, we need you even when we don't think we do. Will you help us to love you? Will you help us to trust you? Will you carry us and see us through this? It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.